if we are gaining the power of gods, then without the love and wisdom of gods, we self-destruct. That we are gaining the power of gods is now both a given and unavoidable. So what is the gain the love and wisdom of gods curve that gets there in time? Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And as I'm sure most of you already know, our location, our address in the landscape of time is right at the crux of what chaos theorists call a catastrophic bifurcation, a shift between one way of living in the world together and a completely different way of seeing and understanding our surroundings and our participation in them to help us make sense of this turbulent transition between worlds. This week's guest, Daniel Schmachtenberger of the Neurohacker Collective, joins me for a conversation about complex systems thinking and macroeconomics that I found surprisingly engaging. But as Daniel says later in this episode, that's just evidence that I'm gaining insight into structural incentive and value systems. Or to put it in different terms, starting to understand the operating principles of the ecology of mind in which all of us exist, what motivates us, and of course how we can design better systems that allow us all to win together. On that note, before we begin this episode, I want to thank all of you who have taken a moment to rate and review this show on iTunes. Your five-star ratings and creatively enthusiastic reviews have been very helpful getting this podcast into the ears of like minds and kindred spirits, and I appreciate you. I also want to give a shout out to Aaron Young, the newest supporter of Future Fossils podcast on Patreon. I'm up to almost 80 subscribers on Patreon right now, which is really exciting and very close to my year-end goal of 100 people who believe that this podcast is facilitating important conversations about our future and helping people make sense of the complex and confusing times that we live in. So if you want to join that group and help ensure that I can continue devoting my full attention to intelligent and inspiring creative media, then you can join Aaron and 77 other people and counting over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where you can also find for free an extensive amount of the music that I've produced over the years, including the kind of stuff that you're listening to now, as well as the science fiction audiobook I just released, An Oral History of the End of Reality, which explores the social, psychological, and spiritual consequences of AI forgery and our decaying ability to agree on the facts. Kind of a dirge for simpler times and an ode to the vast new landscapes of possibility emerging before us. Lastly, before we begin this episode, a big thanks to Future Fossils podcast sponsor, The Body Hacking Conference, here in Austin, Texas, from February 2nd to 4th of 2018. Body Hacking Con is about human augmentation, personal expression, democratized medicine, and bringing the DIY ethos to our own bodies. They're bringing people together from all industries interested in what's happening right now and body hacking all over the world to make connections, friends, and share experiences and resources in order to build the best possible future. 
Some of these folks, including conference director Trevor Goodman and one of this year's key presenters from Australia, my buddy Meow Ludo Meow Meow, have been on Future Fossils before. I highly recommend that you go back and listen to their episodes. And if you're interested in that juicy confluence of intelligent and creative people, then go to bdyhax.com. And with that, I release you into the wilderness of this wonderful conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger of the Neurohacker Collective. Thank you so, so much for listening to this show. Thanks for telling your friends. Enjoy and have a beautiful day. So shall we begin? We shall. Awesome. Daniel, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Like we were discussing just before the call, I I heard you talking on Future Thinkers and was impressed with your conversation with them and the the scope of your synthesis of like ecological thinking and how it is that we can create real powerful opportunities for ourselves in a regenerative economy over the next few decades and uh you're clearly in this space already uh with your your various enterprises so i'm i'm curious to know how you got to this point in your life how you how you decided that thinking about this biggest you know, this big picture stuff was important to you and why it became like personally significant to your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had, no, it's great. It's great to kind of understand where people are coming from into this. Uh, I had a fortunate early exposure. So I grew up on the work of Buckminster Fuller and complexity science and systems theory and futurists. And so uh, it's kind of always been uh, the come from. And then fairly early on, I got into activism work. And it started with animal rights work and then uh, environmental work and then social uh, dynamics work. And so I was working with different NGOs that, you know, starting really young, like nine years old, homeschooled. That got to be a huge part of the homeschooling. And having some systems theory background already, I was able to see that the causes of the issues weren't being well addressed and the interconnection of the issues and the generator functions weren't being well addressed. And as a result, the really well-intentioned and very hard-earned successes largely displaced problems elsewhere. There were externalities even to the uh, positive projects that were trying to solve externalities. And so, uh, you know, where we would think of something like the death of elephants as an externality of an incentive system that makes their tusks worth something. There was a project that I was working on to try and protect elephants at a preserve Greenpeace and World Wildlife Federation. A number of groups were working on it. And the solution was bigger fences around the preserve and harsher sentencing uh, for poachers. And after a tremendous amount of work, that happened. And it actually succeeded in terms of keeping poachers from poaching elephants in that area. It, of course, didn't address the poverty of those people who had really no other solutions at all. It didn't address the worldview towards animals at all as a whole, the black market on various other animals. It didn't address the macroeconomic system that creates poverty um, inexorably. It, It didn't address any of those things. So the same group of poachers moved to start hunting the mountain gorilla and the white 
white rhino. And because I was working on enough different projects, I got to see those movements. And, you know, there was an existential devastation that started. It started with seeing all of the suffering that humans were inducing unnecessarily on themselves and each other and the world. And then at least there was some hope that there were projects working to resolve these. When it became clear that the projects working to resolve them weren't really resolving them, I started to look deeper and say, where else is that happening? Where are the other environmental projects so we work really hard to prevent a dam that's going to have ecological catastrophe but then that means that the energy from the dam doesn't come in so the coal plant comes in or you know like there wasn't a deep enough focus kind of anywhere at how do we actually do complex system problem solving and design and management we only knew how to do simple systems or complicated systems, and we were doing complex systems, and the, the toolkit was obviously broken, right? And so as I started diving in deeper there, um, kind of early in teenagehood, I saw that the trends that were happening in terms of biodiversity loss and in terms of peak resource use with nitrogen, phosphorus, et cetera, if we just continued those curves at their current rate, while also looking at the positive curves of increase in solar or whatever kind of positive curves, we only got to an adequate evolutionary place to deal with the negative curves after extinction. And so the the forecast, you know, and, and this was basic methods of forecasting, but the forecast was inexorable self-termination. And uh, so then I'm thinking not only of you know, unnecessary human-induced suffering and the failure of the solutions, but existential risk writ large. And so, of course, the idea of succeeding at some partial set was broken, right? The idea that I can have success in my personal life working on some of the problems and other ones are continuing to happen, and I know about them. I know what it's like in a factory farm, right? I know what it's like in, in extreme poverty, but I can be stoked because I'm succeeding in some small area. I can only be stoked if I can disconnect my empathy from what's actually going on, which is a kind of which is being a psychopath, right? Some level of abstract psychopathy. Yeah, cognitive and, dissonance is a is a characteristic of the modern human. I think it's like it's necessary. It is of us. because we have a system where um, structural violence and externality are implicit throughout the system completely. So participation with it at all requires participation with that, right? And so it was clear that there were no models of success that could actually work for me. And that killing myself to get off of the kind of like crazy bin of of violence didn't help anyone else. And so the only thing was, is there a solution to all of this that's actually viable? And it was clear that it wasn't going to be more of the kinds of things we were already doing that weren't working. It was going to be, you know, if we've got in the for-profit world, something like $70 trillion trading hands every day that is almost all externalizing harm somewhere along a supply chain then it, if, if I was to allocate a billion nonprofit dollars really intelligently per day, I'm still five or six orders of magnitude too small in my effect. How do we – we have a system where human agency has been predisposed to be directly and indirectly harm-causing. How do we change that generator function at scale where all human agency is disposed by the nature of the system to be omnipositive? And that if you do that, you can get off of the current curves and have a discrete nonlinear phase shift, which evolution does, single cell to multi-cell, you know, et cetera. 
cetera. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that nothing less than a discrete nonlinear phase shift was adequate. And so then, you know, the rest of the process has been what are the necessary and sufficient criteria of the post-transition world? And how do we actually support that emergence? Mm. So this is around what time are you starting to think this way? Like how long have you been in this pro- in, in the pocket with this one? The assessment of definitely self-terminating on the current path was a brown 15. Yeah. And so, yeah, because there's that, that thing about, you know, the neglect in the traditional presentation. Our mutual friend Bruce Damer talks about how he was helping Ray Kurzweil with the images for his book, that, like the graphics for his book, and that he was responsible for giving the uh Kurzweil the infamous hockey stick chart mm-hmm. you know which is appropriate because Bruce is a Canadian and mm-hmm. the, the you know he makes this point with the chart that you know a, a lot of this stuff was absurd but that the the timing of those predictions aside you're looking at the collapse of that complex dynamic that you're you're met, you're discussing here into this is a, like a, the common problem with science fiction it's like even if Ray Kurzweil gets all of them even if his projections are all totally accurate and the oceans die in like 2033, we never get to the 2045. It's the neglect of, well, like any science fiction film where it shows one one thing that's been torn a hundred years into the future and then they're still driving, you know, mm-hmm. in, internal combustion engine cars around or whatever. So seeing it this way, knowing that there has to be this discrete jump. And, and to be clear, like this kind of thing does happen it's not like you said just the transformation and individuality from like individual cells to a multicellular organism but it's even you see it even within human culture where we start to organize at a a larger level and so the units of human society that were at once the the major organizing unit like the city becomes an organ in the body of something larger Mm -hmm. so like i guess this might just be a tangent, but fuck it. Let's write it and see where it takes us. How do you understand your work as a junior process or an organ within a superior process or, or superorganism in this particular mm-hmm. thing? Like, is that a framing metaphor that you use? Is this yeah. how you understand the nature of this shift? And like, in that sense, like what kind of role do you and, and the work that you're doing fit into that? So if we think about that question in light of the name of this podcast, Future Fossils, right? Um, so we think back about all the civilizations that we know of in recorded history. And one of the first valuable insights is that they all ended, right? And so if we read uh, Joseph Tainter in The Collapse of Complex Societies, uh, we see certain patterns of and, and there are updates to that work since then, but we see certain patterns of how collapse occurs. But whether we're thinking about Samaria or Mesopotamia or the Byzantine Empire or Rome, like none of them exist anymore. And the thing, and there were actually elements of unsustainability in their own growth patterns that led to their self-termination. Even if there was an attack from outside, it was usually after there was increasing decoherence where they weren't able to have the military capacity that they previously had, etc. But they were all local collapses, right? The collapse of that empire, as big as it was, wasn't the collapse of everything. And so we're in a unique position now where 
the only meat like the thing that we're looking at having collapse is a fully globalized civilization and the collapses are all between catastrophic and existential right the collapse scenarios and we are currently on the path for collapse scenarios and so when and it's important to get that many of those early cultures actually did ruin their environment they had unsustainable agriculture that desertified the area and then people starved right but they didn't ruin the life support capacities of the planet writ large right which is very different um and a lot of them killed each other militarily but they didn't have nukes that could leave nuclear winter for a long time and so if you think about the evolution of history from a game theoretic perspective and you think of it as the evolution of power in win-lose games and so you have tribes that so long as the resource is plentiful relative to the population don't bother killing each other and as soon as the population outstrips the resource they're competing implicitly for scarce resource it becomes important to then compete explicitly and so then one tribe kills the other one that has the riverfront now they don't have the competitor for the same resource and they have the riverfront life is better for them now all the other tribes who didn't do that have to do that by default or they're going to die from the ones that learned to start doing military strategy as a method of you know advancing and so then you have a big tribe little tribes can't compete so a few of them band together and now you get groups of tribes and then you know this continues to happen and then you get villages and kingdoms and nation states and global economic trading blocks and they increase their competitive power in a win-lose game on all sides and so that means military power goes up it means the ability to extract scarce resource from the environment including unsustainably faster than it can reproduce and they increase their propaganda capacity to disinform the other side and you know have more adherence on their side you when you add the hockey stick part of an exponential tech curve to that win-lose game theoretic dynamic and you get exponential military capacity where no side can actually deploy the power necessary to win without destroying the playing field you get exponential extraction capacity where you actually run up to the fragility limits of the biosphere you get exponential information tech applied with the incentive to disinform and you get now a post-fact world where nobody knows what the fuck is true about anything um you get to the place where to try and continue to win at a win-lose game with exponential power equals omni-lose-lose equals existential collapse. And so either you figure out an omni-win-win game or you self-terminate. And that's the that's the discrete phase shift. Basically, we've been in a win-lose game theoretic structure for a very long time, and that's the phase that's ending. And so then we either have a discrete phase shift up to an omni-win-win kind of model in which when you say what is the larger body that they become organs of all of the separate in groups that define themselves in relationship to an out group in a win-lose way actually dissolve here and become and it doesn't mean there aren't levels of self-organization a city is a real thing right it has a natural self-organizing dynamic tribes within it are real things but the win-lose dynamics at the boundary have to go away. If you look at the cells within tissues, within organs, within organ systems in your body, your kidney's not competing against your liver for scarce resource. If it was, you would be dead very quickly. And so they have boundaries, right? Your, your cell has a boundary, but energy and information transmit across that boundary in an intersymbiotic way with the other things around it, right? And the same is true across all of the boundaries, right? Plants and animals and gas exchanges. So that's the like that's a key thing we have to get so when we think about future fossils 
there won't be future generations to be able to look at the fossils of this culture if we don't actually make this phase shift up. And if we do, they won't have to be looking at fossils because we will actually get down intergenerational knowledge transfer. So we are at a unique point in that whole historical curve right now. So I happen to be reading uh, two books that you alluded to very strongly in this this last bit. Uh, Timothy Morton's Hyper Objects, if you're familiar with this one, Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World, talking about the influence of this, this uh, these complex and distributed phenomena that we have to take as, as real and like you know a phenomenon like global warming and then the other one is james p Carse's finite and infinite games and this this is exactly it a vision of life as play and possibility the fact of it is um we we transit here if successful it sounds like you're saying we transit from that finite zero-sum type thinking to a game the goal of which is to keep the game going for as long as possible and, and to and, continuously better the quality of the game yes and so that rewards all participants and so the, i guess the you know the the question then is at its base an economic question isn't it and so i think this is a very fun topic like i can tell that i've become a boring grown up because i'm now like fascinated by economics and it's a big part of it is watching the conversation in the last few years shift around cryptocurrencies shift around universal basic income a lot of these things that i didn't really give much uh, i didn't put much stock in quote unquote when they first appeared on on my radar to mix metaphors but the thing that's always stuck with me is something that uh, doug rushkoff brought up in in present shock in terms of which, you know, he's the one that introduced me to, to finite and infinite games. He, he said that you look at the really thriving societies, and it's the societies for whom the money lost value if you kept it out of circulation, where the money was pegged to the decay of some real-world resource. Because we don't really, you know, news doesn't gain value when it's a day old. Bread doesn't gain value when it's a day old. And so he was... He was suggesting that some sort of negative interest could be applied to things so that it propels everyone. It, autom- it encourages and incentivizes everyone to keep their money in circulation. It, it, it encourages a, a culture of micro-philanthropy. I mean, that to me seems like the real, the real thing. Or like, is that, is that something that you're thinking about, talking about in all of this? Or like, where, what do you see as the potential strategies for this whole thing to flip overnight? So... When you say that you're a boring adult because you're getting interested in economics, um, if you're getting interested in economics as a philosopher, it actually means that you're just gaining deeper insight into how structural incentive and structural value systems and disposition work, um, which means you are not being a good philosopher if you aren't thinking about those things. And so if we say, all right, how much is air worth economically? Right now it's worth nothing at all. And because it's worth nothing at all, and we make decisions based on financial statements, right, then we will pollute the air and burn it up. Now, how much is gold worth? It's worth 
a lot, a certain amount per ounce. So we will destroy an ecosystem if we need to to get the gold out from underneath it to put it in bars in a safe that is not doing anything for anyone other than affecting a financial uh, accounting sheet. And I want the gold because since we see it as relatively scarce, in a win-lose game structure, if there are scarce things that, where the, not everyone can have it abundantly, then I get differential advantage by having it. If something is abundant, like air, where everybody can have it, then it gives me no competitive advantage over anyone else, so fuck it, we don't value it. Now, if we were valuing what's really relevant to life support or to quality of life or to systemic advantage, of course, that would be flipped. But in a fundamentally win-lose game theoretic structure, we value things that are relative to our capacity to win at that game. And that is pretty much exclusively pathological. Um, it doesn't mean that it didn't serve some relevant evolutionary value, but um, that value is at the end of its life cycle. And so so let's talk about what the future of macroeconomics has to be. And then so the, the concept of demurrage, negative interest. Um, obviously, when we have interest, we have an incentive to keep money out of supply and keep resources out of supply, which means that it's going to maximize extraction and have and maximize hoarding, right? Um, and you're also going to get increasing wealth inequality because those who have more will get more compounding interest on that and et cetera. So there, Demiraj is an interesting thing to address some of that. Nowhere near adequate, and it creates some of its own problems, which is now you have an artificial incentive to make transactions occur. And transactions, movement in the system actually is entropy if the if the action is not actually relevant, right? So system-wide incentives of almost any kind are usually problematic, right? So we need to actually go to a much deeper level of, of insight here. So we say, what... What is it that we're really trying to do? One way of defining it in terms of macroeconomy would be we need to rigorously align the incentive of every agent. And whether the agent's an individual or a group of people, a government, a corporation, whatever, we need to rigorously align the incentive of every agent with the well-being of every other agent and of the commons with no gap. And to the degree that there is gap, meaning that two agents have misaligned interest and you have direct harm, right? Direct competition, which can express itself militarily or through corporate competition that can involve disinformation, whatever, right? Or to the degree that someone's interest and the well-being of the commons are misaligned, then you get externality. As you run exponentially more energy through a incentive system that externalizes harm or that causes direct harm, exponential externality is existential. It's a lot of X's, right? But is existential. But well, we will be, is the point, and, yeah, if that yeah. goes down. And so in the face, you can think of exponential tech and specifically distributed exponential tech as increasing our agency vector, our capacity to affect the world. But if we're not increasing the goodness of our decision-making, right, then if you have more ability to affect the world in the way we've always affected the world, we've always murdered, we've always caused war, we've always we've always used war as a reasonable way to solve problems. And in fact, it's really important to get that in in every 
society that had private ownership, you had increasing wealth inequality until the wealth inequality was so much that war was the only mechanism to stabilize it, to address it. In every democratic society, you have increasing polarization and radicalization of political views until war is the only way of stabilizing it. We, And yet, when you have exponential tech, you don't get to have war anymore and make it through. And so we don't know how to do civilization without war, right? We don't know how to do it where we actually have reasonable ways of resolving differences and et cetera. So it's a fundamental shift. So if you say we're really talking about getting off win-lose game theory completely, that's the phase that we're at. That's, of course, unprecedented, right? It's unprecedented in the whole story. But as you said – unprecedented shit it actually is the precedent of universe when you take a very long view which is you know let's say that life originated on this earth and the model of cosmogenesis that we use commonly is true neither of those are true but let's just take them as true for a minute as because it's a good analogy um then you got 12 billion years of universe existing and doing all kinds of shit and making galaxies and stars and supernovas and all this stuff and it never made life and you would think if after 12 billion years of interactions, it would have kind of exhausted its search base. So life is not possible and then fucking life happens. And it's totally unprecedented based on the things previous, right? And then you go on and on all of human history, 250,000 years right before the plow. And there's – we didn't actually have economics. We only had ecology. We were part of an ecology, but we didn't have surplus. And without sur surplus – you don't have private ownership. You don't have economics, right? So then economics emerged unprecedented and on and on, right? So it is actually the precedent of universe in the long view to do unprecedented shit. And so the the shift for us right now is if we look at Kurzweil's curves of everything getting exponentially better in terms of compute power and the corresponding power to make better biotech and address health issues and solve problems, it's true. All of that's true. All those exponential positive curves are true. If you look at all of the decrease in biodiversity and increase in pollution and damage to the biosphere and increase of existential risk probability, all the negative exponential curves, they're all true too. And people cherry pick the ones that they like from the data set to cause a confirmation bias. But when shit is getting exponentially better and exponentially worse at the same time, neither of those are actually happening. It's just that the phase is destabilizing, right? The the movements away from the homeodynamic center line is getting further and further. That means you're moving from one type of organizational complex system into a cha chaotic phase, which will be a liminal phase. And then you'll get the emergence up into a higher degree of order or an entropic drop down to a lower degree of order. That's the precipice we're on. The verge of and it it is not economic it's economics governance infrastructure culture together right and we can say but economics is a good way of thinking of the the heart of it because economics can be seen as the interface layer between our values and the way we build the world the value equation, right, which is that the air is worth nothing because we're only valuing things that give us competitive advantage. Our value systems get codified into an economic value equation of how much actual value that confers real power we give different things, right? A whale swimming in the ocean has no economic value to anyone currently. A dead whale on a fishing boat might be a million dollars in whale meat. So this is why we are – 
fishing out the oceans and causing species extinction and mass, right? But that's a value system, right? That is a, a mimetic, spiritual, existential, ethical value system codified as a value equation that determines what we confer power and advantage to, what ends up winning, and how we actually build infrastructure in the physical world. So changing that is actually at the heart of and requires change in infrastructure, change in the corresponding social structures, governance, law, you know, et cetera, and in the worldview. So clearly this is not the kind of thing that's going to happen in a linear way because there's an obvious chicken and egg with you've got to get people to shift. You've got to get a critical mass of people up to a developmental level where they are able to think in the terms of the complex systems in order so that they can start assigning an economic value or at least urging an economic value for things like that living whale or as christian schwagerl talks about in in the anthropocene he talks about his discomfort with the notion but his sort of settling on it as a best a best strategy that the world economic forum was examining how we could assign a a value to the atmosphere processing that a given acreage of rainforest in the Congo would provide so that those people are able to participate in an economy without having to succumb to, you know, predatory international development strategies, you know, so like that, that all makes sense. But again, like you can't put a, you can't put a number on what you don't see. Right. And so, and we, and we know through, work a developmental psychologist like Robert Keegan at Harvard that it takes years for people to learn to think at a at a new structure of consciousness like at a new layer of awareness to move out of you know self-interest and into a, a wider uh, sense of participation and therefore ethical responsibility you know so i don't know what it, where are you uh, I, you seemed like you were shaking your head about the the ecosystem services too so i'd love to break off wherever you want to break off into that ecosystem services sounds like a nice idea like lots of um kind of new economics ideas sound like a nice idea and it's not that they have no possible transitional relevance but in the face of um distributed exponential tech it doesn't work at all and so you know we can just think about that as a defining criteria for a moment and say Okay, with the distribution of tech, right? The first existential tech the world had was nuclear bomb. We had two superpowers that had it because it was super hard to make, super expensive. And so you could have those two spy on each other and have a mutually assured destruction system so nobody could use it. And we could live in the relatively dreadful peace of the Cold War, right? Now, of course, we have a lot more than two countries that have nuclear weapons and we have nuclear weapons in places that we don't even know. But with exponential biotech and nanotech and AI tech, et cetera, you have stronger than nuclear level capacity by non-state actors, radically distributed. How do we make it through that is a very deep question, right? And it really is, if you want to think of it in a mythopoetic sense, which I think you actually have to, if we are gaining the power of gods, then without the love and wisdom of gods, we self-destruct. And that we are gaining the power of gods is now both a given and unavoidable. So what is the gain the love and wisdom of God's curve that gets there in time? And so that that power is actually used for the good of the whole, because if it's used against, which elicits counter against, which have that much power everywhere, then you get self-destruct. 
And so it's important to really get that as a framing. So we don't think that the things that have worked before, some modified version of them will work now because it's a radically different context. Okay, so environmental services. So if I have a rainforest or a marshland or whatever, it's not worth anything right now. So uh, if it gets cut down and turned into grazing land for cattle or whatever, it's worth something. So how do I how do I keep it from getting cut down? Well, can I make it worth more alive? Well, I can say it's sequestering so much CO2 and stabilizing so much, um, you know, soil runoff when the rains come. And then if I can get a value on that, the CO2 can be in terms of carbon credits and the, you know, whatever, right? Um then maybe we can keep it alive. To the degree that that helps any ecosystem right now, I'm delighted. As a long-term strategy, if what I'm in, several things wrong with it. If I'm incenting, if, if the way that it's making money is sequestering CO2, then I wanna start optimizing it for heavy sequestering CO2 plants, right? Where then it makes more money as opposed to the whole rich biodiversity that makes a healthy forest or ecosystem, many of which are going to be less optimized for CO2 sequestration than, you know, another way of doing it, right? And so, but then I say, well, what are the other things that it's doing that I don't know how to monetize yet? There are other plants that are pulling out different kinds of particulate pollution and also what is the effect to the pollinators and to the birds and to that, right? And when I really understand what a tree is doing, it's doing an indefinite, like an undefinable number of positive things to an undefinable number of beneficiaries. And so when I take some small metrics-based subset, then I will start to optimize for that small metrics-based subset, which is exactly the fucking wrong problem that we do everywhere, which is we take a complex system, reduce it to a complicated system, optimize for the complicated system, kill the complex system in the process. And so if I take an n-dimensional set of self-organizing complex metrics and I reduce them to 10 metrics and I run optimization functions across those, it'll be the wrong thing every time. So metrics-based optimization, right? I can look at somebody's low-density lipoprotein, give them a statin drug and their and their low-density lipoprotein comes down. Awesome. Except that the toxicity to the liver and the toxicity to the brain that come with that statin and et cetera, and even why the cholesterol was high that might have been the body protecting its vascular system from certain kinds of uh, damage, I'm not measuring those things, right? And when if I try to measure all of them, now I get so many metrics and I try and do optimization across them that it's actually uncomputable. It becomes an NP-complete issue and you can't actually find optimization points. And metrics-based optimization has us always think in terms of theory of trade-offs. So, okay, how much liver damage is worth how much brain damage is worth how much risk of heart disease so that I optimize between those. But they're uncommensuratable, right? How many dead rhinos is worth how many parts per million of mercury in the water is worth how many tons of CO2 to know how to allocate my resources? I don't know, but I'm going to find out because I am... You, <laughs> no, but I mean, so, you're right, though. It's like, I actually you have just to actually a paper stop. about that for Uplift Connect. It was like, you, you know, this, the whole, there's like, there's actually like a, a socially toxic dimension to life optimization for this very reason. It's like the sinister side of, of this trend to reduce the human being to information. It's, it's part of that, that you say, oh, you know, and in order to adapt to my post-industrial work existence, 
yeah. then I have to optimize my my life so that I can get as close as possible to an imaginary paleolithic human being or whatever it is. You know, it's just it's it's bonkers. So anyway, well, sorry, so go on. There's a couple different issues there. One is are the things that we think we are optimizing for the right things at all, right? Um, if we have the ability to genetically engineer the human, is our goal to make us all the best hypercomputers possible, right? Like, as we get exponential tech and we can actually change what we've thought of as nature itself, we get very deep ethical and existential questions at the core of it. But what I'm actually bringing up here is a that's a core issue, but I'm bringing up a separate issue, which is actually just, just a result of metrics. And there is actually a way around it, which is eat from a information theory point of view, I want to know what is everything that matters in a particular situation where we're going to try to do development or, you know, in, enhance something. But I want to know what is everything that matters? What is it that matters about it? How is it interconnected? Now, if I use metrics and I've got this thing is on a one to a thousand scale and this is on a negative a thousand to a thousand scale and this is this kind of unit and this kind of unit, how do I commensurate them when they're actually non-fungible types of value, right? This species goes extinct, but this other one, like, it gets a little bit better there. Well, did they have a say in it? Are they considered beneficiaries of the system? And so if instead, if I use a, if I use a Boolean system where it is a zero and one based system, and really what I'm looking for is does this thing matter? Does this particular value creature process matter? And if so, then we have to create a design that tends to it. And then we can have a Boolean tree underneath it that says what matters about it but when i have them in zero and one i don't look at how much do i damage it or how much do i take care of it i define thresholds of what take care means it creates the zero or one but then everything that matters becomes a design constraint to an integrated complex system design process and now i'm not looking at these each of the issues separately and saying how much resource do i put into this one and put into this one where it's the optimization point i'm saying how do i create an integrated system design that tends to everything that matters here and so this is a different information theoretic way of approaching complex systems that is actually relevant to complexity so it seemed for a while there that you were getting into the, this whole stream conversationally drifts into the area of where this change is going to come from. And clearly, because it is a planet-wide phenomenon, it's going to come from everywhere at once, in some sense. But then you have the William Gibson future arrives, and it's unevenly distributed, right? So how do you see this uh, well, it's it's more than holistic, right? Because holistic tends to reduce things to systems. And I know from you, you know, your acquaintance with Ken Wilber that you know you don't see the individual or the system or the culture or the the inner life world, the experience as like reducible to one another. You know, so how do how do we understand this like? Uh, Every like all scales of organization, all levels of complexity, co-occurrent shift in the order. Like, in what way do you expect to see it taking shape? You know, how are you consciously participating in its emergence? 
Yeah. So there's a number of projects that we're working on related to these things. Um, but I'll just go ahead and talk about how do we see the shift occurring um, kind of macro. So just to use a very classic analogy, when we think about the transition, the discrete nonlinear phase shift transition from caterpillar to butterfly, it goes through a liminal phase, right, which is the chrysalis. And the caterpillar doesn't just like lose weight and grow wings. The caterpillar actually goes through a, a very complete dissolution process. And then the amino acids are resequenced by a second set of DNA, butterfly DNA, caterpillar DNA, two different um, code bases. And so we can really see that the caterpillar's job was it, it had a developmental phase where it was basically defined by net growth and consumption unrenewably, gathering the parts necessary to then be reassembled foundationally into a different code that was not about net growth and consumption in the same way. If the caterpillar didn't go through that phase shift, it would eat itself into extinction. So if you plotted those curves, you would say it eats itself into extinction. But of course, as the blood starts getting rich enough to be able to you know, go into the chrysalis, you start getting the first imaginal cells kicking in, which of course the caterpillar body attacks as foreign invaders but then they start to proliferate more, triggers the movement into the chrysalis, dissolution of the caterpillar, recoding. So this, and, and then just to complete that story, the butterfly is actually pollinating the plants that the caterpillar decimated, but across these vast ecosystem spaces that helps the evolution of the whole thing, right? So you get what was net un unsustainable, devastating, uh, based on growth and consumption, was actually a developmental phase of something that's helping the evolution of all those systems. So if we th think about developmental phases, the 40 weeks of a baby in utero, if, if it continued, would kill itself and the mom. And the the phase shift of leave the birth canal umbilical cord cut is not predicted by the 40 weeks before if you didn't know that thing was going to happen right the the same is true of a chicken inside of an eggshell so you have all of these discrete phase shifts associated with developmental phases and i think it's fair to look at humanity as being in a developmental phase defined by net growth and consumption of the technological and scientific and you know etc capacities that are necessary and and it was win-lose game theory and capitalism and the military industrial complex that got us those but now it self-terminates if you keep it in that phase just like the caterpillar or the in utero baby but you can then and what the interesting thing is if the baby comes out too early it dies but if it if it stayed in later it would die it is there's a very kind of tuned window where it both has to shift and can right it didn't have the capacity to before all of the developmental phases are defined by that so the kind of economics that is necessary for a distributed exponential tech world is not Marxism, is not capitalism, is not any version of capitalism, not socialism or fascism. It's a fundamentally new shit that we couldn't have even thought of before because we didn't have the tech necessary to mediate it. And so, you know, if you have shitty jobs that nobody really wants to spend their life doing that a civilization needs you have to figure out how do you force people to spend a lot of their life doing the shitty jobs so you either give everybody you know, meet everyone's needs as a state in a communist way and then the state has to force people to do the shitty jobs so it's imperial and we don't like it or you let the free market force them which is if they don't do the jobs they starve um, but as soon as technological automation starts replacing the shitty jobs and it's non-sentient 
doers of those things. The need for extrinsic control, extrinsic incentive of all the humans goes away, and it's a foundational axiom of every economic theory so far. You think we're going to get rid of all shitty jobs? Progressively. Yeah. And But basically it goes like this. If you can write a process for it, you can automate it. It requires the technology to advance, but anything you can write a process for, you can automate. And without AGI, right, with just automation. And anything you can write a process for, no human wants to spend their whole life doing. It's fun for a little while. You might get kind of zen with it. You might learn something. But ultimately, uh, doing things that are discovery and creativity and connection-based is where our intrinsic incentive is going to come. And so there happens to be a very nice match here, right, between what our generalist capacity that can write processes and create technology to do those things can do and what we actually want to do in an intrinsic incentive-based civilization, in econo- economy, educational system, etc. So where does the change come from? Like the imaginal cells, there will be initial prototypes that now you know, we have plenty of eco-villages that are prototyping some things, and it's a part of the curve, right? And it's nice, but they actually don't offer a model for how civilization could change comprehensively. They don't have the ability yet technologically to automate the shitty jobs, to, um, you know, have an Internet of Things that is taking an inventory of the commons and being able to uh, inform a data system that can help the enrichment of the commons, right? It, it doesn't have those new forms of governance and economics factoring Boolean fields. So um, they're nice steps, but our ability to actually build prototypes of civilization that have fundamentally new forms of economics and governance and infrastructure, right? Integrated complex system that have necessary and sufficient criteria for complexity that basically um, outcompete the current world systems comprehensively because the increased coherence of those systems makes a lot less resource per capita create higher quality of life output across the entire set of things that we would consider. And so here's the real funny irony is that the omni win-win system actually outcompetes the win-lose system while obsoleting win-lose dynamics itself. And that is the transcendence of the win-lose phase into the omni win-win phase because in the the win-lose phase you get a fractal win-lose defect process where i'm supposed to cooperate with these guys on my team to compete with the other side but the the competitive mindset has gone such that even though cia and nsa and fbi are on the same team called the united states are all competing with each other and then different departments within are competing with each other and then different people are and as a result you're actually getting fractal decoherence everywhere which means radical inefficiencies right and the best things that could be built won't be because the ip is separated by separate companies that are competing with each other so they can't synthesize the knowledge and because information equals competitive advantage we hide the information and then intentionally disinform others. So then we live in a world where there's so much disinformation, you can't parse signal from noise. That is the decay of this system, fractal decoherence and disinformation that will make it possible for another system to actually radically outcompete it if it gets coherence down. And coherence actually does mean not win-lose dynamics within that system. Sounds like your, your, uh, in, in in the sort of like Hyperion Cantos, where uh, the character Ania is asked to 
she, she attempts to reduce Jesus's Sermon on the Mount to two words, and she offers choose again. Yours might be open source. That's the distillation here, is that if we really want to, you know, like, uh, was it a uh, former CIA guy who was, he's been strongly advocating the open sourcing of intelligence agency work. And it sounds like that that's exactly what you would see if you're going to get this sort of multicellularity, like the emergence of a, like a planetary individual, as you were discussing earlier, that there's, there's an, a free exchange of information across the cell membrane of participating subordinates. Although you got to be careful with that, right? Cause you're, you're talking about like a, uh, what you might call like a holarchic organization. It's a nested natural hierarchy, not like an enforced hierarchy. A hierarchy of inclusiveness. Hmm. So a city includes all the tribes within it. The tribes don't include the city. So there's different levels of um, consideration where the city is working on having the tribes within them uh, have uh, omni-win-win dynamics across them that the tribes on their own don't necessarily have to think about. But it is not a... Um, hierarchy that has any of what we have thought of as power structures involved. Open source, as we understand it right now, is necessary but not sufficient. And if you were to, you know, reduce it to a couple words, you could reduce it to a word, which would be omni-considerate. Mm-hmm. Or then the applied side of that, which would be omni-win-win, which means that any act of agency positively affects everything that it affects. And what is the omni-considerate is the consideration of how to do that, right? But that can't just be an idea. It actually has to be the economic system itself and the governance system as well as culture and the tools that are necessary to do that. So I know that we're running out of time here with you. Um, and this is a, this just points us to what could end up ultimately being kind of a cliffhanger question because I feel like we've we've created a, a you know the map of the problematique here and we're starting to to glance at at least the the contours of or textures of this, the flavor of some solutions but I guess you know if you have insight or suggestion into this particular area maybe this would be a good way to end it which is because we're all at different points along a like a developmental sequence you know like what we're able to consider what we're able to attend to uh who we're able to take into consideration as an audience or as the affected by our actions is you know limited by our ability to perceive and to cognize by by that like by how much we i we are able to experience and thus i have the potential to identify with in our in our worlds you know like how much how big is the planet of our experience how far is that horizon and so you know when we talk about the the way that this is going to work is by organizing things so that everyone's incentivized to participate in a way that benefits everyone is it even possible to have that kind of uh, does not omniconsideration require omnipresence like a total surveillance or like perhaps like a shift in our consciousness as individuals that would be 
perhaps like difficult for us to contain psychologically? I mean, how does this even, how do you see this being deployed, implemented? Sure. So it's pretty hard for me to consider how to increase the quality of life of the creatures in another galaxy. Uh, Because I don't have very much um, sense data about them to know how to do that. Fortunately, I also don't have the ability to affect them very much, so it doesn't really matter, right? Now, as soon as I start getting the ability to affect them, then understanding that matters. So I need my sense systems and my information processing systems and my actuator systems connected. If you think about, from an evolutionary bio point of view, it's never advantageous to select for sensory systems alone. It has to be sensory systems that then can integrate that sense info with the other senses and then be able to have information processing to inform choice and then have the actuator capacity to act on that choice within a closed loop of the ability to sense the effects of that choice and learn, right? And so information input, information processing, actuator output, closed loop. That's actually what gets selected for is that triplicate. If you, if I could sense something that I couldn't make any sense of, it would actually fuck me up. If I could sense something that I couldn't act on, it would mess things up, right? Um, similarly, if I could act on things where I couldn't sense the effect of the action, then I wouldn't be able to learn if that was successful or not. And so the triplicate of those is what defines the evolutionary adaptiveness of a creature. Now, what's happened for humans is that our ability to make tools, which means our ability to identify some of our capacities, our corporeal capacities, and extend them in tools. I can see the way that my fist can bang something. I can make a hammer that can do it better. I can make a wrench that can do what my grip can do better. I can make a telescope that can extend my eye or a microscope. I can make an industrial supply chain that can extend my entire production capacities, right? I can make computational systems or an abacus, right, that can extend my my processing capabilities. But we can make these in isolation from each other so the triplicate is not bound anymore. So right now we have a world where we have an amazing amount of sensory input possible, right? We can see stuff from the Hubble. We can see stuff from electron tunneling microscopes. And we can see input from everyone around the world on the Internet. But we, that's decoupled from sense making. So when I read stuff, I can't actually tell if it's fucking true or not. I can't put it together with the other things that I know, right? And so I have a tremendous amount of sense input that I can't make sense of. Then to the degree I make sense of something like, okay, there, CO2 is actually a problem. I have no idea how the fuck to act on it. And then to the degree that I act on things, like I go buy this laptop that we're talking on that comes from an industrial supply chain that affected life on six continents, I actually have no sense coupling to what the fuck was actually affected and how it was affected to inform if I want to make that choice or not. So it's our information processing system is broken open, which is fundamentally non-adaptive, and we're running exponentially more energy through that broken open information ecology. And so... Omniconsiderate, um, we basically, when you said does it require surveillance, the sensory input and information processing and actuator output have to be coupled. If I'm affecting shit, I have to know that I'm affecting it and be able to factor it. If I'm not affecting it, it doesn't matter that much. So to the degree that our actuator technologies are giving us the ability to affect things in the world, we have to know how they're being affected and then be able to process that in a way that informs how we use that capacity. 
And that's why it's so exciting to plant this recording in history that Facebook has told everyone this week they will be letting you know who paid for that ad. So this has been super fascinating. I know you've got to hop to another meeting. I feel like we've really only started getting into the real meat of it. And I would love to do this again with you sometime. Yes. I didn't actually answer your primary question. So I want to say one thing to it. The people who already have the capacity and disposition for omni-consideration will find each other and build systems that increase that capacity in more people. And that will be an autopoetic cycle. I think I agree that really it's not so much about making this change occur as it is making it land as lightly as possible, making sure as many people can get on that boat as possible, possibly widening the definition of person here. And where the boat is actually a training ground for boat builders. Ah. Right? And and captains. And this is the key thing, is that those who are oriented to will build refugee solutions at scale for the massive upcoming human migration issues. And they'll say, how do we build refugee solutions since the people won't be able to integrate with current societies because nobody wants them? And they won't be able to go back to the places they came from for maybe forever. So they have to be enduring, which means that we can't subsidize them forever. They have to actually be generative. And since we're basically building cities from scratch that have to be generative at scale for a long time, this gives us the opportunity to take the fallout of the current failing system and build a new world. What should the education system there be? What should the economic system be? What should the governance system be? What should the media system be? What should the, you know, all the human services be? And how do we actually prototype that? There will be people similarly thinking about how do we create macroeconomic systems that automatically are incenting win-win dynamics better so that everyone who's participating in those will be growing in their omni-consideration by the byproduct of interfacing with the system, educational systems, etc. So it is... Those at the front end of a, a omni-consideration bell curve from the fortune of the life that exposed them to those things have to self-organize and will self-organize to create systems that then bring that kind of disposition to wider audiences, which then continue to do the same thing, and then it scales. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about this is imagining how we can encourage people to play by new rules that benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, how do people find you other than your totally pervasive Facebook ads for your amazing nootropic products? Uh, where do we send folks to, to follow up on you and the ways that you're helping out? So the uh, ads you're speaking about are a company that we have called Neurohacker Collective, dot comments the website and there's one product out right now which is in the cognitive enhancement space but the the goal of that just to tie it together is working on complex systems medicine and complex system psychopharmacology to actually do a better job of having human physiology predisposed in fundamentally balanced and positive ways and there's a whole bunch happening beyond what's obvious there so far um i have a blog you can check out uh, civilizationemerging.com just put up has a little bit of stuff and uh facebook awesome 
Daniel, it's been super fun. I think uh, I didn't have to bust out my brand of time travel sickness pills for this <laughs> conversation, but I, we got close. I think you have a, a really clear vision for all of this, and it's a treat to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. I love the show. I love uh, the concept of it and what you're doing here, and it's really fun to be in the dialogue, so I look forward to more. Absolutely. Cool. Take care. Have a good one. Take care, my friend. Thanks again for listening to Future Fossils Podcast, a member of the MindPod Network, along with such excellent shows as the Synchronicity Podcast, Third Eye Drops, It's All Happening with Zach Leary, and many, many more. Go to mindpodnetwork.com to check those out. And if you'd like to support the show, give us a rating on iTunes or stop over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thank you, and have a most excellent eon.